Hi, I'm Walter Lane, and you've tuned in to a sermon podcast from the Netherwood Park Church of Christ in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Thanks for listening. situated. I've got all my stuff here today. I brought something very special with me today to share with all of you, and it's this box. What makes this special is not that it, uh, the box itself, it looks cool, I guess, uh, but what makes this box special is what's inside. Shortly after I got engaged to uh, my wife, Shayla, she was my fiancé at the time, she gave me this box, and inside was probably around a couple dozen letters that she had written to me. At some point in the past, Shayla had started writing letters to her future husband, and at the time she started writing, we hadn't even met yet, so in that sense, those letters were written before Chase or in the B.C. era of Shayla's life. <laughs> so then I came along, and, and truly at some point there was then a shift, and the letters started to be addressed to me individually. When she gave this to me, it was an overwhelming gift, as you can imagine, and I just devoured these letters. In fact, I had to kind of ration them because um, it was a lot to, to digest. Shayla had written these starting a while back with anticipation in her heart of, of a change in the future. And, and once we met with anticipation of a change in our relationship, that we would eventually one day be married. And so in these letters, she was sharing her heart with me. And again, as you can imagine, that was an overwhelming and a humbling and inspiring gift. This is one of my most treasured possessions. What a cool thing that she did for me. So I brought this box of letters today because I think that it can help us understand what God has done for us. In one sense, the Bible is God's letter to us that he's given us to share his heart, to help us understand his thoughts, his hopes, things along those lines. The Bible is unique because it's a story about other people, but it's also our story. We're in there, too. Uh, It speaks to us. So God inspired these men in the past, to write these things down. And I believe that when he did that, God also had an anticipation in himself as he looked ahead to a change in his relationship with creation. The unfortunate thing is that sometimes we find ourselves confused and we misunderstand the Bible. We have a hard time making sense of it. And I think this is especially true when we look at the Old Testament. 
Many of us struggle to make sense of the Old Testament and understand it. Have you ever read something in the Old Testament and just felt totally lost? You know, you finish a chapter or a page and you think, I'm not sure I could even tell you one thing I just read. And the problem there is not so much that we're struggling, but I think the problem comes when that negative emotion or that frustration we have causes us to dismiss the Bible outright. And we just set it aside thinking it's inaccessible, there's nothing for us there. Can you imagine, what if I would have done that with the letters that Shayla gave me, you know, to say, well, they're maybe kind of long, I don't really feel like reading them. That would be ridiculous, right? No one would ever dream of me doing that with my wife. And yet, the God of the universe, our creator, has given us this letter in the Bible, and so often we find it uh, difficult to spend any meaningful time in there. So when we get stuck, I want to offer a quick suggestion here. When we get stuck in the Bible, I think one of the best things we can do is to zoom out for a second and see how does this particular thing that I'm reading or studying, how does it fit in to the big picture? So I've put this in a little phrase for us here for our Bible reading. Here's a little tip. Read small, read big. Four words. Read small, read big. So to read small means that you should drill into the individual stories and understand the characters and the motivations and, and the various things that are going on with those stories. But you can't forget to also read big. And in doing that, you take a step back and you ask yourself, how does this particular piece fit into the bigger picture? And when we do that, when we get a vision of that bigger picture, it brings further meaning to those individual pieces and starts to help us understand why all of this stuff is in there. Read small, read big. So I want to do a little bit of big reading today. I hope to bring a little bit of perspective to the Old Testament. One of my goals in this sermon is to explain to us why the Old Testament in particular should be so valuable to us today as Christians. And there's lots of reasons that the Old Testament is valuable, but the one I'm going to talk about today is that the Old Testament leads to Jesus. The Old Testament leads to Jesus, who is the centerpiece of our faith. That's a huge reason that we should be studying and cherishing these scriptures. So we're in the Christmas season right now, and so I think there's a feeling of anticipation that comes with that. We kind of look forward to uh, the holiday. We look forward to spending time with family. We look forward to giving and receiving gifts. And if we're doing it right, we look forward and anticipate Jesus. Many Christians uh, kind of formalize that anticipation in the season of Advent. That's the term we're familiar with. And it, it brings to mind this feeling of expectation and excitement and anticipation of how Jesus is working, what he's doing, of his second coming. So we here as as New Testament Christians, we anticipate the second coming of Jesus. But in the Old Testament, they were anticipating the first coming of Jesus. But back then and still now, we are anticipating a Savior. And that's where the title of our sermon comes from. The Old Testament starts recording events from the very beginning of time, And just right away from the very beginning, we see little arrows that start to point to a Savior if we're paying attention. And so even though that first coming of Jesus has passed, I still think there is so much that we can learn when we look back on these scriptures that anticipated his first coming, and it can teach us so much about Jesus. In fact, Jesus himself made the claim that the Old Testament pointed to him. The scripture that Addison just read for us, that's where Jesus makes one of the places that he makes the claim. John 5.39, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. 
Listen to this. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. So just so we're clear, the New Testament would not be established for years after Jesus said this. So when he says these scriptures are testifying about me, he's talking about the Old Testament. He says all of that, it's about me. So that's the understanding we have to come into the Old Testament with. It should be clear to us that Jesus didn't just out of nowhere pop into existence one day with no expectation. It wasn't necessarily a surprise in the traditional sense because the Old Testament had been anticipating him for a long time. In fact, there is an ancient tradition of anticipating a Savior, and Jesus was and is that Savior. So let's talk about that. How does the Old Testament lead to Jesus? How does it testify about him? We're going to discuss three ways, and to make it fun and memorable, I guess, I've I've made all of our points start with P, okay? So we've got three Ps that we're going to talk about. The first way the Old Testament leads to Jesus is the prose of the Old Testament. When I say prose, I mean the, the story or the narrative of the Old Testament. So you could ask, why didn't I just say story or narrative? But, you know, I just said we're going for three Ps here, okay? So stick with me. The prose of the Old Testament leads us to Jesus and anticipates a Savior. So once you get even just a little bit familiar with the narrative of the Old Testament, you see this need for rescue and deliverance is a strong theme throughout all of those books. Jesus' people are in constant need of rescuing and saving from their enemies, from their sins, any number of things. Even just right from the very beginning, Adam and Eve, they're disobedient and they introduce sin into the world. And ever since that time, God is working hard to reestablish an intimate relationship with his creation, with his people. And unfortunately, too often, we as his creation are unwilling. So God's pursuing even while his people are kind of avoiding him and pushing him away. That's a recurrent story in the Old Testament. So things go on and eventually God selects Abraham and he chooses him. And he lets Abraham know. He, he tells him, I'm going to do great things through your descendants. I'm going to give you a big family. And I'm going to bless the world through this family. God's trying once again to move closer to his creation. So more time passes, and later, that same family has grown in size quite a bit. And now they're slaves in Egypt, and God comes once again and moves close to his people, and he says, come on, let's go. He rescues them from slavery. In that same time, he establishes laws and sacrifices and a number of other things designed to help his people relate to him better. More time passes, and eventually God gives them a king to rule over them, to kind of formalize them as a nation, unite them. God's presence continues to kind of manifest itself in new ways. We had the tabernacle and then eventually the temple. We see God being with his people, this desire for relationship. And so throughout the prose or the the story, the narrative of the Old Testament, we see God trying to come have a relationship with us with mixed results on humanity's side. Sometimes there's a willingness to engage, but too often there's not. And overall, there's just this feeling that it's sort of inadequate, that the things that are happening uh, are just not working the way that they should to establish that true relationship. It's kind of a heartbreaking narrative, actually, when you read through things. When you read the Old Testament and and focus on that story, it's kind of a cliffhanger ending. The the Old Testament ends, and you're kind of saying, well, what, what now? What's the conclusion? You're left wanting more. And then, thank God, that was not the end, right? Because here comes Jesus, 
Jesus is the conclusion of the Old Testament. He comes in on the scene, and everything starts to make sense. So that whole story of the Old Testament, whenever we start to read it, we've got to understand it's leading us to a point, and that point is Jesus. The whole story leads us there. So more specifically, we can kind of dial in on one piece of this. The Old Testament does some very detailed uh, foreshadowing of what's to come. And so we know what foreshadowing is in a movie or a story, a book, something like that. There's little details and events that are dropped into the early narrative that then point us to something that's going to happen later. They give us little clues about what we should be looking for. And the Bible does that. And so foreshadowing in the Bible, it has a very special name that came from the Bible nerds, I guess. It's called typology. So I put it on, uh, on the screen here so you guys can see it. Typology. And the Bible itself tells us that this foreshadowing is intentional and that we can benefit from it. Romans 5.14 says this, Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. It says Adam is a pattern of the one to come. The ESV translates the word pattern as type. So it says Adam is a type of the one to come, referring to Jesus. That's where we get the term typology. So in that Roman scripture, it goes on to compare and contrast Adam and Jesus. So Adam was one man, and he sinned and introduced sin into the world. Jesus was one man who did not sin and therefore introduced uh, grace and, and redemption to the world. So Adam is a type of Jesus. You can see how that story of Adam anticipates the coming of Jesus. And when we do that compare and contrasting, we learn more about both Adam and Jesus. So there's kind of an interplay there. And once you start to to see these patterns develop, to understand this typology, you can see types all over the Old Testament. So look at the Passover lamb in Exodus, for example. The Passover lamb was supposed to be perfect, without blemish, right? No bones were to be broken on the Passover lamb. It was innocent, and its blood on the doorpost saved the Israelites. We see those same things with Jesus. The Bible says he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. None of his bones were broken. He was perfect and innocent, and by his blood we are saved. So there's this foreshadowing, this anticipation of Jesus in the story of the Old Testament with things like the Passover lamb and many, many others. You can look at Moses, Joshua, David, and others as rescuers of God's people. All of those are types of Jesus. They're patterns of what's to come. And again, by comparing and contrasting these individuals, we learn more about all of them. All the stories of the Old Testament have Jesus woven in and out of them. We have a children's uh, Bible that we read to our kids, and it does a great job of going through these Old Testament stories and into the New Testament, relating everything back to Jesus. Because again, Jesus, he's what it's all about. He's the centerpiece of our faith. So the Old Testament anticipated this Savior. And so as we read that, That should fill us, even now, with that same sense of anticipation of a Savior, that anticipation of Jesus. When we evaluate the story of the Old Testament, I think we should also recognize that God gave it to us just to teach us about himself. There's lots of stories in the Old Testament. As we read through them, it's tempting to think that the people we're reading about are the main characters. So, for example, I read 2 Samuel, and I think, well, David is the main character in this story. I think we've got to reject that as an incorrect view because if we're honest with ourselves and understand the reality of things, God is the main character of scriptures. God is the main character of the Old Testament. God is the main character of the New Testament. 
And so when we read these scriptures, we have so much to learn about our Father. And the fact that God is unchanging and that Jesus is God in the flesh, it means everything we learn about him in the Old Testament applies the same today. It's the same God. He hasn't changed. And so we have these uh, quite a bit of records of his interactions with people that apply to our relationship with him today. We learn about him, and we can apply those things readily because God is the same today as he was back then. So that's what God was trying to do. He chose to relate to Abraham and Abraham's descendants, at least in part, to show the world what he's like. It's like those letters. Shelah wanted to be known. God wants to be known in the same way. He reveals himself to us very intentionally, and he miraculously preserved these scriptures for us. These are ancient documents, and yet we have them today to inform our view of who God is. God very intentionally preserved this message for us to learn from. The narrative of the Old Testament leads to a Savior. In fact, it necessitates it, because when we see who God is, we see him having this desire to say, I want to be close, I want to be with my people. And so something has to happen. And that's where the Savior comes in. That's where Jesus comes in to start to bridge that gap. So just let that sink in for a moment. God did what he did because he wants to be with you. He wants to be with me. This whole narrative and all those things is this story of God pursuing us, pursuing you as an individual. I think that's incredible. It's not just a general principle for us. It is deeply personal. God wants that relationship with you. That story in the Old Testament leads us to Jesus. And I would suggest that any understanding of God and Jesus that is not informed by the Old Testament is an incomplete understanding. It is a part of our scriptures for a reason. Okay, the next way that the Old Testament anticipates Jesus is our second P here, which is prophecy. The Old Testament anticipates and leads to Jesus through prophecy. This is perhaps one of the most obvious ones, right? Quite literally, prophecies anticipate uh, Jesus. So I think generally we're familiar with what prophecy is. Take Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7 as an example. This is a little bit of a Christmas uh, scripture, right? Verse 6 says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So to be honest, prophecies, again, generally we kind of know what they are, but I think in practice we kind of struggle with these. You could read through the Old Testament and maybe miss a lot of what's being prophesied there. But when we look at something like this, it's kind of clear. We start to see a picture developing, and it becomes even more clear when we take scriptures like this, prophecies like this, and line them up next to other ones, and we layer them on top of each other, and now this bigger picture starts to develop, and we have a a better understanding of what's going on here. So taken individually, it's hard, but whenever you put them together, it makes more sense to paint this picture of the coming Messiah. So in this particular prophecy, it's saying, hey, a leader is coming. There's even hints that the leader might be God himself. It says, he will be called Mighty God and Everlasting Father. It also references the covenant that was made with David by saying that he's going to reign on David's throne. And so we'll get into that a little bit more in a minute. So let's look at one more prophecy. Layer that one on top here. 
Micah 5.2 is one that's a little easier to recognize once you know what you're looking for. It says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, you are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. So when we put these prophecies next to each other, we know that we're expecting a ruler who is eternal, but now this one tells us, hey, he's going to come from Bethlehem. And indeed, that's where Jesus is from, right? That's where Jesus is born. So you can see how these people living in these times even could start to understand something's going on here. We should be on the lookout for something. And now definitely in hindsight, we can get a very good sense of what God is wanting to do. Mentioning hindsight, some prophecies start to make more sense only in hindsight. And in fact, the the New Testament does a good job of calling our attention to some of those things, saying, hey, look at this thing back here in the Old Testament. This is talking about Jesus. So as one quick example of that, Matthew chapter 1 tells us that in Isaiah chapter 7, there's a prophecy about Jesus concerning the virgin birth. And what's interesting about many of these prophecies, maybe all of them, is that there was a relevance in the time that the prophecy was given. So there's kind of a dual meaning. So in Isaiah 7.14, it says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. So that prophecy had relevance. It was a, a kind of modern prophecy in those times for King Ahaz. It had relevance for him. He was worried about some things happening with the nation. And so the prophecy is telling him, hey, there's going to be a sign for you. There will be a virgin who will conceive, presumably uh, naturally, back then, who will give her birth, and, and the child is going to be called Emmanuel. But then later, Matthew's writing the gospel here, and he recognizes, hey, I'm aware of this virgin birth of Jesus, too. That takes him back to Isaiah, right? And he points that out for us in Matthew chapter 1, saying, there's another meaning here. This scripture, yes, it was talking about Ahaz and, and Judah and what's going on there, but it was also talking about Jesus. So I want to spend a little more time talking about prophecy, because I think we can misunderstand it. When we think about prophecy, we often kind of think, oh, it's someone predicting the future. And for the Christian, I just don't think that's a totally accurate view. I think that's a pretty limited view. So first off, we have to recognize it's not the prophet themselves making that prediction, right? God is inspiring them to share these words. In fact, prophets just serve as a mouthpiece for God. So they just say whatever words he gives them. And so often that had to do with things in the future, but sometimes there were just general warnings or or other things that the prophets were talking about. So God is the one inspiring these words. It's not a prophet making some prediction on his own. So to help us understand a little more, I read recently that one good way to understand prophecy is to view it as a course syllabus. So we know what a syllabus is, right? Those of us who've been in school. uh, An instructor hands out a syllabus at the beginning of the course, and it has his plans for that class, right? The assignments and topics that will be covered, etc., So whenever those assignments and topics and tests come up, do we think that the instructor has predicted the future? Like, oh, this guy's good, right? (laughs) No, of course not. Nobody is claiming that that professor predicted the future. The whole idea of a syllabus is that the instructor is making his intentions known. He's saying, this is what I plan to do. And then when those things actually come to pass, it's not surprising because the professor, the teacher... That instructor is in a position of power to make those things come true, to make them come to pass. And so it's the same with God. When God inspires a prophet to utter a prophecy, he's not really predicting the future so much as just making his intentions known. 
And then we're not surprised when those things come to pass because God is in a position to execute things according to his will. So by reading and understanding those prophecies about Jesus, it's God making known his intentions about what he wants to do with this Savior, what he wants to do for his people. And that's awesome. That makes it important for us. We should be very interested in these prophecies because even by looking back in hindsight, we get a better, uh, more true, realistic understanding of who Jesus was and is. So in addition to prose, the story, the narrative, and the prophecies, here's our last P for how the Old Testament anticipates Jesus. And that's promises. Promises are our third P, or you could say covenants. The importance of the covenants is found even just in the name of the Old Testament. So the word testament actually means covenant. And so in that sense, we have the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, right? The Old and New Testament. There's, there's multiple covenants we could look at and lots of things we could dive in there, but for the sake of simplicity, we'll just look at a, at a few things at a high level. One of the first big covenants that we see is a covenant between God and Abraham. God tells Abraham, Abram at the time, he's going to give him many descendants, give him land, and that kings would come from Abraham's line. So essentially God's saying, hey, there's going to be some major blessings for your family and through your family, major blessings for the rest of the world. So we read about that in Genesis 17. I'll read a little bit through this. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I will make my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Abram fell face down and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come, to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. So God's making this promise. He's kind of establishing this type of relationship with Abraham and saying there's going to be some long-lasting, very positive consequences from this relationship. So why then do we care about it? Well, I hope it's obvious, but the New Testament makes it clear for us. Galatians 3.14 says, He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus. So usually it's safe to assume probably most of us fall into that Gentile category, right? We're non-Jews. Through Jesus Christ, he redeemed us that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. So so many of the blessings that we receive today can be traced back to this original covenant that God uh, interacted with Abraham in such a special way, and, and the effects of that have carried on for a very long time afterwards. So again, some time passes after Abraham, and later he made a covenant with Moses and with the nation of Israel. And this covenant kind of reestablished the Israelites as God's chosen people, and he gave them the law as part of this covenant. And it came with some expectations on God's part. At times, God made kind of unilateral covenants saying, it doesn't matter what you do, I'm going to be faithful to this. But certain covenants also did come with some expectations. And so when God gives the law, there is some expectation that the, the Israelites are going to be obedient to that, that they will 
follow the things that are being outlined. And in fact, Exodus 19.8, the Israelites say, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And it's kind of this cool pinnacle, and oh, it's great. But we know they don't hold up their end, do they? We don't hold up our end. The people break God's law, they break the covenant, and even though God remained faithful on his side, the people are breaking that covenant and running away. So once again, more time passes, God gives them a king, David uh, rises up, and God makes a covenant with David. And essentially, I'm, I'm simplifying here, but essentially God says, David, you will always have someone on the throne. That's great. And so David is overwhelmed, it's, it's an amazing thing. And once again, we see the pattern repeat itself, that people just can't hold up our end of the bargain. And so the descendants from David and the, the kings that come after him are disobedient, they're not faithful, they, they trash this covenant that God is trying to, to establish. And so the situation seems hopeless. The people are devastated. The whole nation of, of Israel starts to collapse, and they're, they're defeated and taken over. And once again, here we are at the end of the Old Testament saying, well, this is pretty bleak. What's going on? We're pretty discouraged. We're not sure what's going to happen. Where is God? And then once again, Jesus is there. Jesus comes to conclude the Old Testament and say, I am the fulfillment of all of these things. So look at this. Jesus is the king from Abraham's line. It says, there will be kings that come from you. Jesus is that king, and through him the whole world is blessed. God gave the law, and we as the people, we could not keep the law. Well, Jesus fulfilled the law perfectly. He held up humanity's end of that covenant on our behalf. He was also the perfect sacrifice The law called for certain sacrifices. Jesus is the perfect sacrifice to end all sacrifices that were called for by that law. Jesus is also the king from the line of David that's going to sit on the throne and rule perfectly forever. And so these covenants that God tries to establish, it just seems like, ah, it's only brokenness that we find there. And yet Jesus comes in to just totally turn that around. The Old Testament is anticipating him. Those covenants are pointing to the need for a savior who's going to do better than we can. God recognized there was no way that we could hold up our end of the bargain, and so that's where Jesus comes in to do that for us. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of all of those covenants. They should cause us, when we read these covenants, to think, okay, we can anticipate Jesus, we can anticipate this Savior, and that's an amazing thing. And once again, these covenants have relevance for us because through Jesus, we receive blessings from those covenants. Jesus, in fact, has made a new covenant, right? A new covenant in his blood that we are part of. And I really want us to to see the importance of this because even today, God is still a covenant maker and a covenant keeper. That's the kind of God that we interact with. I talked earlier about some of the kind of related promises that flow from the major covenants, and I'll give you just one example of how this works. The New Testament draws so heavily from the Old Testament. In fact, I read somewhere that it's maybe as much as a third of the New Testament is either directly quoting or alluding to the Old Testament. So you cannot read and have a full understanding of the New Testament without an understanding of the Old Testament. Here's an example of this. Hebrews 13.5 says, Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have, because God has said, Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So where does that promise come from? Well, you can look back at Deuteronomy 31.6, and we see something very similar. Moses is talking to Joshua and the Israelites about entering the promised land, and they're going to go and, and conquer this land. And here's what Moses says. 
The Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Sound familiar? It says, do not be afraid, do not be discouraged. So here's this promise that God was giving the Israelites way back in Deuteronomy. And now Hebrews is saying, hey, don't worry about money. Keep your lives free from the love of money. Guess why? Because you can be content. God is with you. He's not going to leave you. And you want proof about God's faithfulness in these covenants? Look back at what he did for the Israelites. Look at how he was faithful to them when they were going into the promised land. How he was faithful even during Israel's times of unfaithfulness. It's the same God. So the New Testament is saying, look at this guy. He's not going to give up on you. He's not going to leave you. He's with you. And that's an amazing thing. So we have to have an understanding of God as a covenant maker and a covenant keeper, starting in the Old Testament and continuing into the New, because those are blessings that we continue to experience. Scriptures in in the Old Testament, it's an amazing gift from God that has tons of relevance for us today. One of those primary reasons is because it points to a Savior. And so we're in this season where we're anticipating Jesus and all of that stuff, and I hope that these Old Testament scriptures will be a part of that anticipation, that the Old Testament will inform our understanding of Jesus today. And as we look ahead to his future work that Jesus will continue to be doing, we will also remember the work that God's been doing since the beginning of time. Thank God for the story of the Old Testament, for the prophecies, and for the promises that have so much meaning for us today. I'm going to close this out in a prayer to ask God to continue to help us to make the most of of this season and the most of every day as we anticipate a Savior. God, we love you dearly. Thank you for the scriptures, God. Thank you for the Old Testament, that they were not lost, that you preserved these texts for us to learn from, to, to dive into. Thank you for giving us this story that at every turn just points us to Jesus, God, points us to the need for rescuing, for deliverance, for a Savior and a Messiah. Thank you for helping us to to learn from how you interacted with Abraham, with Moses and the Israelites, with David, and all the people that we read about. Thank you for inspiring the prophets, Lord, to say the things that they said, to make your intentions known, to paint the picture for us of what you want to do. And thank you for the covenants, God, the promises that you gave to Israel and to us. Thank you for keeping those covenants with us and not breaking them. Thank you for being patient with us, and thank you for sending Jesus to fulfill all of those things on our behalf. We are grateful, God. Help those things to sink in. It's easy for us to dismiss these things, and I I pray that we would not. Thank you for the chance to be here this morning, God. Thank you for your word and a chance to, to talk about it and learn from it. Bless the rest of our time here, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.